if Christopher McCandless had, as a 45-year-old, written a book called Reflections on Into the Wild about his own youthful self, I, I just couldn't have had the same narrative energy as this kid who dies Christ-like in the wild on the cross of his own impetuousness. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off-topic. Today I talk about what I consider to be the best travel movies of all time with writer and critic Kevin Smokler. Now if you listen to season one of this podcast, you'll recall that I talked with Kevin for more than two hours about classic 1980s and 1990s coming-of-age movies. And today we invest an equal amount of time into unpacking classic travel movies, a conversation that inevitably requires that we try and figure out what constitutes a travel movie, since movies like, say, Indiana Jones or Jurassic Park have travel elements without necessarily being about travel in a thematic sense. Now, a big reason I decided to talk about classic travel movies ties into yesterday's episode when I talked about my experience on the set of Leonardo DiCaprio's The Beach 20 years ago. And while that proved to be a grand adventure for me personally, I didn't really care much for the movie that resulted since I didn't relate to it much as a traveler, even as I traveled to the same parts of Thailand back in the day. So today, Kevin and I talk about travel movies that do work, movies like this one. All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just going to haunt me the rest of my life. I have no idea what your situation is, but I feel like we have some kind of uh, connection, right? Yeah, me too. Great. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. We just got into Vienna today, and we're looking for something fun to do. Sprechen Sie English? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, we speak German for a change? Now I'm going to call my best friend in Paris, who I'm supposed to have lunch with in eight hours. Okay? Okay. Ring, ring. Pick up the phone. Uh, oh, hello? I don't think I'm going to be able to make it for lunch today. I'm sorry. I met a guy on the train, and I got off with him in Vienna. We're still there. Are you crazy? Probably. That's Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise, which makes our list of best travel movies, along with movies like Into the Wild and Lost in Translation and a few others. As is usually the case when I talk to Kevin about movies, this really is a fun deep dive into these movies and how they affect us. I realize you might not agree with our choices, so if it feels like we missed a great travel movie, send me an email at deviateatrolfpots.com and let me know about it. This episode is brought to you by Tortuga. I traveled around the world this winter with a Tortuga pack, and in this episode, instead of making the case for why these packs are great, I think I'll just send you to their website so you can check out the packs for yourself. You can find a selection of travel packs at rolfpots.com tortuga. And as always, if you find a pack you like, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code DEVIATE. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Airtrex, the service that helps you book multi-stop and round-the-world airfares for vagabonding trips. Their flight planning tools are a blast to tinker around with when you're dreaming of the journey. And you can get started with your own travel tinkering by going to Airtrex.com. All right. Here's a two-hour deep dive into great travel movies and just what exactly it is that makes them great. I think we'll start by by tying into the beach because uh, when this airs by yesterday, I will have talked to Jim Benning about the 20th anniversary of me sort of being an extra in the beach, trying to invade the mm -hmm. set of the beach. Uh -huh. And then a little bit less than 20 years ago, me watching the beach and sort of being disappointed. Like it wasn't, yeah. it didn't quite feel 
not just was it a disappointment as like an adventure movie, but it didn't really feel like a travel movie. So do you remember watching Beach the Beach back in the day? And what's your take on the on the movie? No, I actually didn't not watch it in the day I back in the day I actually just watched it this week because you had brought it up in, in, in as something you wanted to talk about um, so I acknowledge that it's probably a very different experience seeing a movie like that in your 20s than seeing it in your 40s um, but I also remember hearing when that movie came out that it was kind of a, a, a Frankenstein monster of the worst tendencies of everybody who was involved. And I, and I, I definitely, I remember the movie finishing, not liking it very much and seeing directed by Danny Boyle and thinking, Oh my God. Yes. Like, like this is, this is this, when Danny Boyle goes wrong, this is what you get. So Um, so this is the impression you got just the other day when you watched it for the first time. Yeah, exactly. Well, at at the time, just to give you some context about what you were Mm -hmm. missing in 2000 when the movie came out. Sure. One, I was – I'd been an extra in this movie and uh, I was still traveling. And so Mm -hmm. some of my distaste had to do with the fact that it didn't really capture what I was experiencing, which of course is not a a fair way to analyze the movie. Mm -hmm. But um, another thing to keep in mind is that this was Leo's first big project after – uh, after Titanic. And so he was like the biggest star in the world. Uh, and so that was tied into the expectations of the movie. And of course, Danny Boyle had made Train Spotting a few years yeah. before that. Of course, later he made um, the, the Oscar winning uh, run. What, what was it uh, the, set in India? Um, Slumdog, Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah. And so this is sort of a weird flat spot in his, in his um, body of work. I, I guess you agree with me that it didn't quite work for you. Um, what, no. what does it mean when a Danny Boyle movie falls flat for you? I, I think Danny Boyle, for a director with his level of visual imagination and, and scope of the things he's interested in, is actually better when he is telling a lean and mean story. Um, Train spotting is is ninety minutes with a hard out and is so tightly structured that it it, it ends effectively where it began. Um, I find I find Danny Boyle at two plus hours has a tendency to to lose momentum and feel mm. and feel very and feel very kind of kind of shallow and and fireworky. Um, like it's essentially like like it's a lot more it becomes a lot more sort of what he can do with a camera than than, than holding a narrative together. Interesting. I thought that um, that there, it was just a, a weirdly disjointed story that didn't always yeah. hold together well. And you know, I've 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 touched on this in other podcasts already, so I don't want to dwell on it too much. But I'm just curious to know your take on it as a travel movie because it felt to me like um, we didn't really know the Leonardo DiCaprio character that well. Um, no. and, and he was just sort of doing movie things and I never really related to it as a traveler and it seemed very, very plot driven and it didn't really, I, I mean, the, the, the book brings up an interesting post-colonial idea of, you know, the idea that the traveler's fantasy is to go to a place where you have the beach to yourself with no other tourists and cool people, but no local people. Right. 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 Um, <laughs> and so, but that didn't quite make it into the movie. It felt like the movie was, was sort of throwing a lot of things into the same pot, and it even ended on this sort of sentimental note where Leonardo is, is at an internet cafe 
talking about how you know the, 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 there's one moment in your life and when if you feel like you belong as part of a community then it lasts forever and i'm thinking you just you just strangled a swedish guy you know you're responsible yeah. <laughs> for the death of, of of five people on an island it's like do you have are you a sociopath is there no emotional connection right. to this so it felt it felt cobbled together and i'm curious to know how you took it as a travel movie uh, very much the same like like i really feel like I really feel like the beginning has this has this really kind of cynical, um, uh, almost nihilistic monologue where where it's like where it says, well, you don't know me and you don't need to know me. And all you need to know is that life is about thrill and adventure and and um and the pursuit of that is is a goal unto itself. And, the you know, the the, the dark subtext of that is. Of course, if you're a good-looking white guy, number one, and number two, uh, the unspoken part of that is, and because it's all about my own thrill and adventure, I don't care who I hurt in the process, including myself. Um, there's something really kind of, kind of dangerous and reckless and almost, almost irresponsibly, uh, impendingly violent about that. Um, and then, like. There's a there's a weird kind of youthful arrogance to the rest of the movie. If the rest of the movie is manifest as uh, of what he says at the beginning, then like how how daring and risk taking is it to end up on a desert island with a bunch of good looking people your same age that is largely self sustaining where you can play beach volleyball all day long? Um, right. You know the, they, they talk about it being a beach resort for people who don't like beach resorts, but they sort of do beach resort stuff there. You know, it's not yeah. that different than what they would have done in another place. And yeah. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, the movie the movie never quite reconciles itself to the it, ne it never quite makes up its mind if this is a way for young people to uh, be free from the world's responsibilities or to adopt responsibilities that that suit them and their ambitions. And yet, yet the movie like never actually argues what their ambitions are. Like, is it to be left alone? I mean, are these are these essentially, you know, branch davidians without without christianity and 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 weaponry like i mean the movie uses like 22% of a bunch of different ideas and cobbles them all together and and I remember it a couple of times thinking that the movie, despite that, despite that, despite feeling overstuffed with all of these spare parts of its half-baked ideas I remember feeling like the movie was essentially done with what it had to say at like minute 50 and, and then looking at the clock and being like, oh, my God, there's another hour like like of what um, of uh, uh, for for a movie for a movie with. A, I will say this, though, I will say this and this is just a dumb joke, but like for a movie for a movie about an island, there wasn't a tropical storm, which was really the only like which is really the <laughs> only movie, the only cliche avoided in, in a movie of this type. Somewhere John Hodge, the screenwriter, is kicking himself for not throwing that in because it feels like a movie where you really – it feels like the movie is literally telling you, well, here's another plot point. Like here's Leonardo DiCaprio running into a shark in the bay, you know? Yeah. And he's defeating it and this this feeds into his own arrogance. And that was another strange thing about the, about the character is that he was just sort of this arrogant and self-satisfied guy in a way that we know him so little that we're not really sure why. You know, he's just like – He's just like the good-looking douche who's, who's who's in the room and doing things, so. right? And arbitrarily screams at people for 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 reasons that 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 are not explained or justified by the rest of the narrative. 
Yeah, well, so keeping in mind that um, that I've talked about the beach in another episode, and that we can agree that this doesn't quite work as a travel movie, um, mm-hmm. let's move on and broaden the scope a little bit and talk about what even constitutes a travel movie. Because when I first thought about this topic, when I was first talking to you about discussing this topic, um, I I came up with things like the beach, and then. Movies that I really enjoy that we'll get to later, like uh, Lost in Translation and Into the Wild and Before Sunrise and and uh, The Way and The Straight Story. But then also is like, well, is Indiana Jones a, a, a travel movie? Is Jurassic Park a travel movie? Is Amelie a travel movie? And then you've even brought up other travel movies that it hadn't occurred to me as travel movies. I mean, science fiction, you know, is, is, is Star Wars or Interstellar um, uh, are those travel movies? So – yeah. Um, how would you characterize travel movies? Well, you know, I, it's funny. I hadn't really thought about what makes a travel movie a travel movie versus some of its cousins, like a road movie, for example, um, versus uh, I, I hadn't thought about what makes a travel movie itself as opposed to its nearest its nearest contemporaries until you raise this question to me. And what I've come up with is is that a travel movie is about a protagonist being somewhere far from home and adjusting to the idea of being somewhere else for an often indeterminate amount of time. Uh, in the or in the case of the case of Before Sunrise, a, a very determinate amount of time. That that movie, the the, the sort of uh, the fa- the the ticking clock of is is ticking very loudly in that movie. Um, as opposed to a – so a travel movie is not about arriving somewhere. The the movie – the movie the bulk of the movie is about the protagonist having already arrived somewhere and the adjustment they make upon being there. Uh, whereas I think a road movie is about the, the journey itself um, and the destination as opposed to something that enters, enters the story at minute five in a travel movie. In a road movie, enters enters – enters the plot at the very end, if at all. So uh, I think you mentioned in our emails that this is a very American genre. Does, does it include Thelma and Louise? Um, I mean, what, what examples would you have as a road movie as opposed from a travel movie? Yeah, the, ro- the road movie, like, like Roger Ebert has a fantastic quote um, from some time in his, in his writing history. I I don't remember exactly where, where it says there are three genres that were invented. There are three movie genres that were invented in this country and are uniquely American. Um, and they are the musical, the movie musical film noir and the road movie. Hmm. Um, all of which, all of which speak to a, 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 the moment in American history when they're, when they were created and also a unique part of the American landscape and character. Um, and the road movie, the road movie to me contains in its heart, the, the notion of a kind of boundless country. Hmm. Um, the road movie is ultimately, and, 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 and is ultimately always about characters coming to terms with that not being true. Um, in, in Thelma and Louise, they literally run out of road. Hmm. Um, and in, in easy rider, they, the road is pulled out from under them. Um, and then in Almost Famous, which which for which is really a which is both a coming of age and a road movie, um, the 
the end of the road is the end of the road is is more symbolic than literal. It's about it's it's about the final gesture. It's about more the end of innocence and childhood. Um, well, that's something I want to come back to because uh, it's, uh, at one point I want to talk about sort of our little stable of, of all-star road movies and travel movies that work well. But I still want to dig a little deeper into the definition because you mentioned that these these movies, the musical and the noir and the road movie, are about the moment when they are created. What what era in American history do you think gave rise to the road movie? Uh, the road movie to me feels like – and I couldn't – I'm not a film scholar. I couldn't say this for sure. But the road movie to me feels like – feels like the uh, comes concurrently with with um the creation of the interstate highway system hmm. um and the uh so uh, and the idea of america being a country one can traverse coast to coast and not spend a year doing so uh the way you know steinbeck did in in, in or they spent several months doing so the way steinbeck did in travels with charlie um the um, the idea of, of America as both boundless and yet traversable is to me at the heart of what is a road movie, um, and, and I think interestingly enough, road movies are often tied are often tied to either youth or transitional points in life because the the journey of of a boundless country is also the journey of the of the the discovery of the of of of, of the limits and the power of the spirit of the of the. The, the human spirit and the spirit of the main character. Um, I think I don't think the, a road movie road movies only happen in the United States. The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, is a road movie, mm-hmm. um, which um, contains which contains a very kind of obvious destination at the end, um, and is interesting because it has three protagonists and only one of them is at a moment of life transition. Um, and the Motorcycle Diaries is a road movie. Um, which is very much about not only the main character coming into himself, um, but the reckoning with with the reckoning uh, uh, with a national character, the reckoning of seeing um, seeing who is being left out uh, when we talk about this thing called when we talk about this thing called South America, who is be, who is being left out, who is being left out of the bounty of that description. Have you, but real quick, have you read the book, The Motorcycle Diaries? Have you read that memoir? No, I haven't. Okay. Um, it's interesting. And this is something we'll come back to because we'll be talking about some movies that were based on books that I thought that the book just had a different tone or the movie had a different tone than the book, that the, mm-hmm. that it, inv- it invariably romanticized and sort of retrospectively politicized, I think, some of Che Guevara's um, actions. And of course, for listeners who don't know, The Road- Motorcycle Diaries is about Che Guevara as a young man uh, traveling across South America. Um, and what seemed like sort of um, a nonplussed sort of young man writing in his journal or writing in letters in the book um, suddenly took on a more romanticized, uh, a more thematic and more almost political valence in the movie itself. So I think one thing worth discussing is maybe the limitations of movies or the or the strength of movies in communicating something different than was actually uh, written in the first document. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a weird kind of – the Motorcycle Diaries is of another weird subset of, of like the pre-biopic. Hmm. which is which is movies about famous people before they were famous people um you know south side with you the the Rome, the the movie about the the obama's first date is of that category huh. um and uh and, and is seen as sort of a, a an all in one day romantic 
ro- uh, romantic drama. Um, and, and those movies are interesting because they all stand in contrast to what we feel we already know about that person. Um, and, and they're almost, they're, they're always, the fact that they're seductive is always quite strange to me because like, I understand that like, we shouldn't expect everybody to know everything about famous people, even someone as famous as Che Guevara or Barack Obama, but it is no secret that, that. Barack and Michelle Obama had a date on a summer day in 1989 and went to see Do the Right Thing. Hmm. Um, And it's not a secret that Che Guevara, as a young man, took a motorcycle tour, you know, almost the complete north-south axis of South America. Uh, None of this is none of the none of this are things we don't know. Um, And yet what is seductive about those kind of stories is the telling of is the seeing is comparing them who that person was before they became an icon. We're that, sort of, and that's what really interests me about the movie because it sort of ends. And I, I like the movie. I'm not trying to be hypercritical of the motorcycle diaries, but he swims mm. across the river as sort of an act of solidarity with some, with a leper colony who sort of been, yeah. who've been sort of ostracized or have been assumed to be not part of the, the South American community that he's seeking. Whereas in the diary, he's, he's, he doesn't really state that. He just swims the river just to see if he can swim it. He's a young guy who sees if he can swim a river. And there's a leper colony over there, but there's no intention of solidarity. And so it's almost as if uh, – I think – was that a Walter Salas movie? I don't know. That's a really good question. Well, I think whoever made it, it was, it was almost – even if it wasn't intentional – it was almost like, well, Che Guevara's ideals later became this. So the last scene of the movie has to be about this swimming as not just an exercise in, in stamina as a young man, but an act of solidarity with the lepers across the river. Uh, and, and, and so, again, not to be too critical, but we, we are dealing with movies that sort of um, put an interesting um, lens or, or change of focus on the real life writings that came out originally often as the case of, of Che Guevara or things that have been reassembled like Into the Wild, uh, Christopher McCandless via John Krakauer, um, of, of young men who weren't even writing for an audience, you know? Uh, and so then later they, they become um, more generalized in the context later. Like I'm, I'm sure that the Barack and Michelle date, if they would have broken up six months later, it probably wouldn't have become a movie, right? Like it's the later no. events that give meaning to the early actions and that's the weird thing about those kind of movies this this deep contradiction at the at their heart which is which is we wouldn't care about the early history of these of these people in movie form if they weren't famous um but we already know about their early history because they are famous we often know about it as you're pointing out because they've written it down in in memoir form or or in biographies written about them and therefore, like, what exactly is the point of an interpretive act of making uh, of making a movie that verges radically from what is already effectively public record? Um, right, and th- and that that can be a part of our discussion because oftentimes, like, the movies that I picked as my top three or my top five are really movies that sort of gave me the feels. You know, they gave me this feeling that I might not have achieved had I just been reading a book that, that somehow, and oftentimes it has to do with the music. You know, I'm thinking of Lost in Translation. You take you take My Bloody Valentine and Jesus and Mary Chain songs out of that movie and it might feel different. So these are all things we can touch on. But I think in the, in the context of Che Guevara and uh, the Motorcycle Diaries, it's good to remember that almost 
inevitably, what happened to him as a young man sort of gets filtered through what his ideals were as an older man. So, um, any final thoughts on what defines a travel movie? I mean, would you consider James Bond or Indiana Jones a travel movie? Or, and if not, why, why not? I wouldn't, um, not because I don't love those movies, but I think those movies are largely set dress. The, the, the location is largely set dressing. It, it is colorful backdrop in which action can take place in front of. Now, it, it is very clear. It, it is, it is a, a defining personality trait of both of those cultural action heroes, Indiana Jones and James Bond, that they are uncomfortable sitting still. Um, and we as the audience are uncomfortable watching them sit still. Um, I, I happen to love the scenes in Raiders of the Lost Ark of Indiana Jones as a professor of anthropology. Um, but at the same time, we know full well, we know full well that, 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 that is, that that is merely the movie catching its breath until Indiana Jones can put on the hat and the leather jacket and don the whip and, and go back to running around and grabbing, grabbing artifacts. Um, James Bond almost makes fun of this in a very arch, very British way, where in in the first, you know, 10 or so James Bond movies, James Bond has dinner with the villain um, at at some point. Uh, yes, it's the movie catching its breath, but it's also it, it's essentially the 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 British interpretation of Indiana Jones in the classroom. Um, it's James Bond doing acting as a secret agent, but not not in the way he has reconceived the job of a secret agent. Um, so I, I, those movies to me, the backdrops essentially, the location essentially seems to be an obstacle course for the, for the hero to run through. And we're not supposed to spend a lot of time thinking about how it, it changes fundamentally who the hero, who the protagonist is. The protagonist is in fact, is in fact pretty much unchanging um, because the movie makes them iconic before it even begins. Yeah, it could be that they're interacting with place, oftentimes very distant places, but it's not about their interaction with the place. It's about the, the you know the enemies and the challenges that present themselves there, um, and and oftentimes those are just very physical and technical challenges that that as you say don't lend a sense of transformation to the protagonist. Now, there's another category that didn't occur to me at all until you and I started corresponding, and it's sort of what might be called sort of. Uh, Places away from America are scary movies. Um, and I, <laughs> Xenophobic movies, right? Well, you mentioned um, you mentioned uh, Midnight Express and and Hostel and Not Without My Daughter. I haven't see, I haven't seen many of the movies that you that you explained, and so you can talk about this at, at greater length. But it feels like there's a kind of movie where. It shows usually an American protagonist overseas, but instead of interacting with the culture or a place, the other place is just – or the other culture is sort of part of this obstacle that the, the, the valiant American is trying to get past or, or defend themselves against. Uh, and so it never even occurred to me that these would be travel movies, but what you said made a lot of sense. I can understand why people think they're travel movies. So why don't you explain – these uh, these type of uh, foreign places are scary movies and how they may or may not work under the travel definition of movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I was I was kind of kidding around when I called them when I called them xenophobic movies, because at their worst, they are essentially very conservative, almost nationalistic movies about how uh, about about American heroes and the villain being a foreign country. Um 
where foreignness is always evil. Um, an American, an American does something overseas and their Americanness puts them on trial. What are, what are some um, examples? Off the top of your uh, head. Midnight Express, Midnight Express is a great example, which is based on, which, which came out in 78 and is based on a true story that happened almost a decade before of a kid that tried to smuggle a couple of kilos of hashish out of Turkey while he was vacationing there is caught by Turkish authorities and is sent to, um, is sent to prison for what seems like an unfairly harsh long sentence. And, uh, in the course of trying to escape from prison is, is, is brutally tortured. Um, the, 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 metonym we use the i don't know if it's a metonym it's maybe more more of the colloquial cliche we use when we say turkish prison hmm. um comes from midnight express um turkish prison is a place of as, of unfair and violent justice um it's like saying dueling banjos Mid- right it's like an old yeah. movie movie dueling banjos being from deliverance you know which sort of involves being assaulted by hillbillies um, right. Exactly. Turkish prison means <laughs> means being isolated in this horrible foreign country and, and being assaulted in the shower. Right. And all of these and, and, and seen in their seen, frankly, seen politically in their worst light. These movies are all about how other countries are backwards and primitive. And, and, and we are and, and Americans are paragons of civilization. And the worst thing we can get do is the worst thing that can happen to us is to be stuck in them at the wrong time or falsely accused of something um, or simply being wrong because of our very Americanness and presence in these countries um, at their best. And, and frankly, I don't think this is much at their best. They are cautionary tales about about American arrogance um, you can just as easily look at Midnight Express. No, Billy Hayes, the main character of Midnight Express, probably probably did not deserve a 30-year prison sentence and rounds of brutal torture for trying to smuggle a couple of pounds of hashish out of Turkey. And yet it is a crime. Perhaps it is perhaps in the in, in in under Turkish law it is a severe crime. And therefore just because he's an American doing it, he probably he probably thought that that his crime was less because he was an American. Hmm. Um and uh and that and and we can look at that movie uh, – we probably have to stand on our head to do it, but we can look at that movie and say these movies are cautionary tales about American Americans thinking they are above the law in the places they visit. Um, and uh, and and I would love to say – like I, I have I, – I have no I, – I haven't seen Midnight Express in 25 years and frankly I don't wish to revisit it, but it had – it was directed by Alan Parker. It was written by Oliver Stone. It had a score by Giorgio Moroder. It had a lot of talented people working on it. This was not some schlocky snuff film, um, you know, uh, about Turkish prisons as settings for settings for for you know for violence porn. Um, but frankly, I, I think these movies are are are, re, are real political hot potatoes because it makes it very easy to say it makes it very easy to look at them and say we should be suspicious of anyone who speaks with an accent. Um, it really it really eliminates nuance from the cross cultural gaze, you know. Very much, yeah. Um, and I and and frankly, like I don't. Uh, 
I, I, I don't wish to encourage anything that that reduces that that boils down the experience of traveling to like, you know, staying at your hotel and going to an American chain restaurant in Nairobi. So you don't have to interact with someone who doesn't look anything like you. Right. Um well, I, there's there's a degree of there's sort of a pinchness in Lost in Translation that, that isn't quite them going to fast food, but there is an interesting limited point of view where, like a movie like Lost in Translation, which I like and I think you like too, is also about the limitations of the tourist gaze. And I, I tourist gaze that's sort of an academic word that, that just means of what tourists see when they see an unfamiliar place. Um, so that's stuff I want to get to eventually. You mentioned in your in your in your uh, email hostel. Uh, which and then you also mentioned uh, snuff porn. I haven't seen Hostel. Is, does that does how does that count under this category? Uh, Hostel, you know, Hostel like any like any decent horror movie, and I I can't say I've spent a lot of time with it either. I, I I'm a little bit I'm a little bit too gentle a soul to uh, to you know hang out with horror movies. Um, I, the thing the thing I I think you know. To 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 state what like what like they hand you on an index card the first day of film school, um, because it's that basic. Like all horror movies are the the horror they speak of is always is 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 both universal and specific to that time. And Hostel, which comes out in two thousand and five at the beginning of sort of, uh, you know, two years before the smartphone, at the beginning of sort of the idea of worldwide connectivity via technology. Hostel is all about being cut off from that. Like the horror of Hostel is not being able to call home, um, and being trapped in a in a in a with with, with madmen and not being able to uh, signal for help. Um, and I, I I frankly I don't think there's much to say about it beyond that. Like you know because it's 15 years old now, there's probably some someone in their 20s who considers Hostel a formative movie going experience of their lives if they like horror movies. And I, I, I'm certainly not going to take that from them. Um, but it does play very much on this idea, um, that like, like the warning you receive from hostile. And, and that's, that's part of why, you know, even though we often think of horror movies as made by freaks and iconoclasts, horror movies are oft, often can play very conservative because they are often warning. They're often seen as warnings about what we should and shouldn't do. Hmm. Um, and what we walk away from hostile with is is don't visit foreign countries. Don't visit foreign countries. Don't try and seduce foreign girls. Um, don't um, don't and, and, and you know maybe if we look at it the right way, don't be an arrogant American. Um, that, that's but really I think, interesting. Uh, um, like in the 1980s, it was don't have sex with your girlfriend; you'll get murdered. Right. <laughs> and, right. And exactly. Tw- Twenty years later, it was don't go to a scary uh, foreign place; you'll get murdered. I do want to grab on the idea of, of <clears throat> travel movies that don't quite work. And then we can sort of transition into travel movies that, that do work. And a lot of them dovetail with what we talked about in the last time we talked about in the podcast, which is coming-of-age movies and coming-of-age and in, in travel dovetail quite nicely. But um, speaking of young people, speaking of specific historical eras, um, I was sort of raised with the idea that the movie Easy Rider was the iconic road movie, and I never really questioned that. And I watched it before I took my own USA trips um, in the early '90s, and I never really, I never really vibed with it. And, orig- and eventually, I realized that it just it didn't really make sense to me. That it was um, clearly a movie that had been made by people who'd done a lot of drugs. Um, 
it, it felt like it came out of the 60s. And for the people who watched it in 1969, there was maybe this this uh, glimpse of recognition for a movie that was just completely different than other ones. I know that um, it was a movie that kept lens flares in and was influenced by experimental filmmakers uh, like Bruce Conner. I don't want to give it too much credit um, uh, yeah. just because um, – Oh, who's the actor? Dennis Hopper directed it, and he was he was on drugs most of the time. Uh, anyway, I just felt like it didn't really offer me anything. It didn't give me that that vicarious um, glimpse into travel like good travel movies can. And so I'm wondering if is there a counter argument to Easy Rider? Do you like it, or what's your take on Easy Rider or other movies, travel movies that don't quite work? I don't know. Easy Rider to me feels like feels like a band's first album. It's sort of it's sort of gloriously messy in its in its audaciousness and youthfulness. Um, but that doesn't make it a good movie like like that makes it like that, like that makes it a really interesting gesture um, or a really like noble attempt at something. Um, but like, I mean, listen, every, every every baby boomer in America, when they hear this, is going to want my, is going to want my head in a skillet. But. Colors is also directed by Dennis, also directed by Dennis Hopper is a better movie than Easy Rider. Hmm. Um, And and Colors is about cops and L.A. gangs in the late 1980s. But Dennis Hopper had gone far and seen much that time. And by by that time, and he, he was probably it was after Hoosiers and the revival of his career. And he probably felt like he had something to live for instead of, you know, just being frankly a nightmare to be around to to both his friends and the crew and everybody involved with that movie if you read the book easy riders raging bulls um uh, about you know that the, the sort of era in american filmmaking that was launched by easy rider uh, it is a small wonder Dennis Hopper wasn't like murdered in his sleep by by a conspiracy of like six of his friends because he sounded like just absolutely insufferable to be around. Maybe one definition of a good travel movie, we'll continue to explore it as we talk, is that it's able to work nuance into a genre that doesn't usually linger on nuance that much. Yeah, I, I think I think the, the definition of a travel, you know, part not the definition, but part in in the DNA of a travel movie is all of these different characters sort of swimming in and out of focus as the as the as the protagonist comes across them and interacts with them. As a result, it's it's because you you often have a larger cast in a travel movie. It's pretty easy to make those minor characters uh, nuanced and therefore have the experience of the main character interacting with them be nuanced. Uh, there's there, there's nothing there's nothing in the rules of movie making, if those things even exist, that said that every person that Peter Fonda and Jack Nicholson and Dennis Hopper came across in Easy Rider had to be a racist thug. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing that says that. And in fact, in fact, Easy Rider is a more interesting movie if they're not. Hmm. Um, and yet, and yet, because um, this this movie, despite its despite its it's it's really quite remarkable act of imagination when it came out. Just despite that, this 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 movie has an incredibly narrow view of its fellow citizens. Um, and- a- a- everybody who isn't the main characters is is a bummer, um, or or a, a threat. And I think it's almost the opposite in the in the travel movies that I do respond to. And we'll get to this eventually, but I just know that 
you know, if you if you watch before sunrise, there's the Austrians in Vienna are just very decent people. Um, if you watch the Straight story, that everybody who runs into Alvin Straight in in Iowa and Wisconsin is a very decent person, and I think it's it's through not really seeing foreigners or foreign places as as places where you might get tied up and tortured or places where you might get insulted, but it's when the filmmakers acknowledge the humanity and give them the benefit of the doubt and allow them to be decent that you can really explore into the heart of why travel is such an interesting act. Yeah, and The Straight Story is such an interesting example because The Straight Story is is almost like like nakedly midwestern. I, I mean, they, they may as well have like painted a stalk of corn on on the film stock, um, because it's very. The straight story is literally about the kindness of strangers. It's it's positioned as a fable, where a person at the end of their life does something that is that is daring and yet and yet also kind of kind of dangerous and stupid at the same time, and succeeds because of the kindness of strangers. Um, and, and just and just so our, our our listeners know, the straight story is about a man, seventy three years old, Alvin Strait. He's too blind to drive a car. He's had a fallout with his brother, who's a couple hundred miles away. So he drives a lawnmower for six weeks across Iowa and Wisconsin to find him. And he has these very curious and understated adventures along the way. It's a Disney movie, but it's also a David Lynch movie. Um, and so yeah. it's just such an interesting starting point for for a movie that would come out in twenty years ago in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, it's the movie that David Lynch needed to be middle-aged to make um, because it's it, it's a, culturally it's almost the opposite of Blue Velvet where like a movie where like is about like small towns where everybody has a deep dark secret. Um, and you can see like a young David Lynch thinking how how what a de- what a delicious idea this this would be to 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 make a movie. There's a, there's a youthful fiendishness to to Blue Velvet that is that is has settled into a, a middle-aged appreciation for the kindness of others um, in the straight story. Uh, Before Sunrise, I, I think what's most interesting about what you're saying about Before Sunrise is you really, Before Sunrise brilliantly puts its finger on this idea that Vienna is a place that is used to having visitors from other places. Hmm. Um, it does not regard people from elsewhere as dangerous or as, or as interlopers. It is part of being a part of being a citizen of Vienna is interacting with visitors from other countries, um, and you see that in the personality of you know the bartender who gives Ethan Hawke a free bottle of champagne, or the uh, or the two actors on the street who give Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy an invitation to the to the play about cows. Um, there there there's a notion there's a notion that 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 travel. Um, Travel is both is is kind of something that that the Viennese are proud of, um, and the fact that that people seek people seek their city out. And those are two interesting movies to talk about in in the same hand. Maybe maybe not at length, but it's just interesting how Before Sunrise is very much about two people meeting and talking about the future and trying to figure out who they are going to be. Whereas uh, the straight story is is a much rarer travel story. It's about a man at the end of his life talking about not the future but the past, uh, and then making sense of who he has been as opposed to who he is going to be. Um, and so I, I was uh, I was moved by both, but I think maybe I was sort of excited by Before Sunrise, but I was very moved by the straight story simply because 
it gave the protagonist role to a character that you don't usually see in the protagonist role. You know, just this the, this Midwestern nobody who's 73 years old and probably doesn't have a lot of time to live. And it really humanizes him and the people he meets in a way that makes it a very affecting travel movie for me. Yeah, I, I speaking really from personal experience, I love travel movies that don't idealize youth. Um, plenty of my favorite travel movies do, but I also think there is kind of an unfair bias that all travel movies should also be movies about young people because young people don't have, you know, mortgages and marriages and children to contend with. And so they can go, they can go wandering across Vienna, you know, um, in the middle of the night with, with another, with a fellow young person, um, as someone who, as someone who was utterly unready uh, and ill-prepared to do that kind of wandering when I was in my 20s. Um, I really appreciate seeing someone who is not young having those kind of adventures because I'm 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 45 and I'm just having them now. Uh, awesome. And I and I, it's super exciting because I just feel I just feel older and wiser and you know more financially stable. Um, and I can share them I can share them with my wife who who is younger than me but and, and is in her 30s. Um, and and didn't you know for other reasons didn't have those opportunities when she was in her twenties, um, but psychologically speaking, uh, when I was twenty two, like I I I was so scared of being an adult, the idea of backpacking across Europe, even though, even if I was only doing it with everybody else who was my age, was terrifying to me. Like I I was I was I was I was terrified of like of like how I was going to pay rent and get a job and figure out where the laundromat is. I, um, the I, I last think, thing I wanted was was being far from home. I, I think that's interesting that we have a lot of movies, and we can talk about some of them, that idealize the wanderlust urge of young people that in a way are a parallel to the sex comedies that show 15-year-olds wanting nothing more to lose their virginity. When in truth, oftentimes 15-year-olds are sort of scared of the idea of sex. You know, I remember not being very comfortable um, with the idea of sex when I was at the age where a lot of teen sex comedies happen. And so one reason why I love the TV show Freaks and Geeks is that it shows these these young boys, Sam Weir and his friends, sort of being freaked out by the by the prospect of watching a porno that they're that James Franco steals for them. And so there's a parallel here that I think um, we have a culturally received idea that youth is the time to travel, but that it doesn't always feel comfortable for us to travel when we're young. And so that's why it is nice to have travel movies that depict travel in a little bit of an older age category. And I'm curious to know if you've seen The Way and what you think of it. I haven't, no, but I, I it seems to fall into this um, – to this sort of alternative travel category you're talking about where it's not simply it's not travel isn't simply an expression of the freedom of youth. Yeah, it, it's um it, Martin Sheen is the star and Emilio Estevez directed it, who's the son of Martin Sheen, and it's about like the Estevez character is hiking the Camino de Santiago and dies on the first day there and the father goes to get his body and has never traveled, he's probably in his 60s and then becomes inspired to carry the ashes of his son down the Camino pilgrimage road. And it has, it has um, some roll your eyes moments. Some of the characters are a bit overdrawn, especially at first. There's a, there's a, a younger Canadian character who calls Martin Sheen boomer. Cause he's a baby boomer. And she sort of brings in all <laughs> of these, all of these stereotypes of what a, bo uh, what a baby boomer should be like. And it feels very written, 
But I really appreciated it, one, because it shows the, this, this travel character arc happening to somebody in their 60s and somebody who's, who's actually mourning. I think a lot of times travel is the backdrop for self-discovery when, in fact, in this movie, um, the Martin Sheen character is mourning the loss of his son and he's traveling at the same time. And so while he's mourning loss, he's also discovering possibility. And spoiler alert, at, at the last scene, he's, he actually has finished the Camino and he's off in Morocco doing some more traveling. Um, but, but I thought that... Um, Another thing I liked about this movie is that it um, it, it handled religion very very tastefully um, because I think that there's there's a whole legion of really cheesy evangelical movies that are like the church bus movies that like the God's Not Dead mm. type movies that are very didactic and and not very interesting and then there's there's this sort of knee jerk anti religiousness in popular culture whereas one thing i appreciate about the way is that without being an overtly catholic movie it really respected the catholicism at the heart of the camino de santiago and of the characters who were doing it as a as an act of religious devotion and not just an act of mourning or an act of self discovery so it's it's definitely in one of my favorite travel movies even though it doesn't have a young protagonist yeah um that that's great like i i i I really don't appreciate movies that like 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 you're saying that that seem to that seem to carry with them all of these sort of sort of unspoken prohibitions about what you can talk about within that genre or within the idea of simply movie making itself. Um, there isn't. Yeah, I, I'm sure I'm sure when when Emilio Estevez was putting this together, there was some executive or other that was like that was like, oh, you know, we can't we can't say the word Christian because because that's like saying because that's like, you know, that 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 puts us in movie jail or that there that gives us a, that that unfairly brands us as something which is just horseshit like like movies are all about the spe- movies should be all about the specifics of the story they're telling. Um, and I, you know, I, I really I appreciate I appreciate when movies and movie genres, the very word of which seems confining, um, uh, the, uh, the idea of stating genres is to say what a movie is and is not. Um, and I would much prefer that a genre be, be like, you know, an art, uh, uh, like, like, uh, like a period in an artist's creativity, like Picasso's blue period or, or something, or, uh, you know, when, when, it, in fact, the prohibition, the the restrictions are are a gateway to freedom, um, where we take a genre and we say, here are all sorts of interesting things we can do within these ever moving definite these ever the ever moving wall, the ever shifting walls around that genre, as opposed to as opposed to simply you know as, as opposed to simply giving giving red X's and blue check marks to um, to whether. To what to, to what a, a particular example of a genre like travel movie can or cannot do, and I think one strength of travel movies is that by subverting those old movie tropes, and I'm talking about good travel movies, that it allows us to dig into those nuances that are the gift of travel. You know, it's it's why we leave home. And I'm not saying that travel movies necessarily evoke what it's like to travel, but they evoke little little nuggets of what we like of what it's like to travel. In fact, a movie that we'll get to in a second, which is Lost in Translation, is very much about displacement and and not being an expert about a place. And it's almost easy to Mm -hmm. criticize by how naive and and sort of stunted the protagonists are and and how they spend most of their time in their hotel and they don't really get that far into Tokyo. But there's something very relatable about that ragged edge to travel. And I think 
by definition, travel is not something that you're really an expert in. You're in a, you're in a foreign place and you're figuring things out. And so even a subtler movie, I'm an experienced traveler, but a, a subtler movie to Lost in Translation, which we'll get to in a second, can really evoke something, a small thing that's true about travel in a way that is straight up bang up, shoot them out, shoot them up, cut them up, um, genre movie couldn't. Um, and so before we get to these these more, like to my three favorite movies, which might not dovetail with your three favorite travel movies, mm-hmm. I want to touch on something we talked about before, which is young travel movies. And I, I wrote down three of, the, of all the movies we talked for two hours last time about coming of age <laughs> movies. And three of them stand out to me as travel movies. Uh, Almost Famous, which you've already mentioned in, in this podcast. Um, Stand mm-hmm. By Me, which is very much about uh, – is almost like a Joseph Campbell-type myth of young men going to the forest uh, to find something having to do with mortality and coming home to tell a story. And then Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which – I loved from the beginning, but it was years before I realized that it's sort of a travel movie, that Ferris and his friends go and do dorky tourist things in Chicago. They go to a restaurant. They go to a museum. They go to a baseball game. Um, and so just feel free to comment, since I know you're vested in, in, in uh, coming-of-age movies as well as travel movies, about how this travel um, ethos or this travel energy can manifest itself in these coming-of-age movies that you know so much about. Yeah, I think, I mean, those are all really good examples. And and Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a is a particularly interesting example because I I, I think that I, I think that movie wears very well. Does it feel like 1986? Of course it does. Are its cultural politics pretty on the conservative side? Yeah, there's definitely a an idea that the the travel in Ferris Bueller's in Ferris Bueller's Day Off is the kind of travel that someone who like who like even though they live 45 minutes outside of Chicago by train views Chicago as a foreign country. Um, the places uh, you would think you would think based on where Ferris and his friends go in Chicago that they've never been to Chicago before, even mm-hmm. though they're 18. Um, uh, it's all it's all with you know other than other than the. Uh, other than uh, uh, Wrigley Field, it is all like within the loop tourist destinations, um, and so it's very an that, 80, it's that, a very eighties thing where where like the suburb is the narrative ground zero, and traveling into the right. center of the city is actually the in, the foreign zone. Exactly, and, and you need to you need to like you need to like get on your get on your high horse and or, or your red Ferrari and get out of there before dark because it's dangerous after dark. Yeah. Um, Ferris Bueller is of course you know Ferris Bueller is the is the the good movie example of that, and a year later, Adventures in Babysitting is the lousy movie example of that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's really the the idea of 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 how far a young person strays to have adventure is very much part of Ferris Bueller's day off. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I can't believe I, I, I've never drawn this comparison before, but there is, there is, although Ferris Bueller's day off seems like a really exuberant movie, there isn't a real underlying current of sadness in that movie, which is that this is probably the last adventure of this kind that these friends are going to get to have together. And, the main character, Matthew Ferris Bueller, says as much in one of his narrations to the camera. And I think the way that links up with um, 
that links up with Lost in Translation is the reason the adventures of the characters in both of those movies can seem a little paltry is that there's a real sense of loneliness and loss in both of those movies and a real sense of fear of, of, of being too far from what feels safe because you feel lost already. Um, and the further you stray, the more it amplifies this very, you know, this very dark corner of your heart. Um, I think, I think lost in translation is, is very much about how people, people who are lonely is a movie about loneliness and very much how people who are lonely often find each other and, you find another you find someone else who is also in this not great state and, and you are not the best you know the, the the and the reason it's such an interesting approach to romance is a the main characters don't really get romantic in any in any real sense of the word and b like for a movie that is essentially structured like a romance most movies about romance seem to say being in love is the best version of yourself and Lost in Translation doesn't say that at all. <laughs> it, it in fact says sometimes you find the right person when you are a really uncomfortable, awkward, broken version of yourself. Um, it's interesting and, that that none of the movies that – like none of my favorite travel movies are really like anthropological explorations of the local culture. You know, that they're all about yeah. this liminal space where the traveler is – sort of interacting with the local culture, but maybe their heart is opening up, like as in Before Sunrise, to a, to a fellow traveler, right? Or, or to a fellow lost mm-hmm. person, like in Lost in Translation. And then a little closer to home in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you have you have this this friendly concern that Ferris is, is worried for Cameron. You know, he's worried about his own future, but there seems to be something very evanescent about their place in life. Yeah, there's – I mean the idea for Ferris Bueller's Day Off was like something that John Hughes scrawled on a notepad like kid has kid has incredible day off – has greatest day of his life playing hooky from school. That was the pitch you know, in his mind for Ferris Bueller's Day Off and then he wrote it in like a week. Um, it's amazing how much is there for a movie that is as 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 eager to please you and innocent on its face as that movie. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is the way it views movement and the way it views adventure, which are which are two of two of the real you know two of the real vital organs of of the travel movie. Um, and yeah, I think you could argue. I, I think you could argue that Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, even though the travel is not really consequential to what happens to the characters, w- where it does overlap with this thing we call travel movies is travel movies are always about time. They're always about they're always about a, a sort of distorted sense of time because we are separated from what we know. Um, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off is an attempt to stop time. And by 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 expansion, the act of growing up, because we know that means leaving our best friends behind. Yeah, it's, it, you know, this rears its head in Before Sunrise, of course, because Richard Linklater is, is time is like his his core philosophical idea. And, and Jesse, isn't that the truth? Yeah, Jesse and Celine often talk about they, they literally talk about time. They talk about their own experience. They and they analyze things that happened just a few hours or, or minutes ago. But then also the straight story to bring in a movie we've we've already talked about that this is a man who time his time is limited. You know that he can he can barely walk. You know he should he should be using a walker, but he's stubborn, so he's using 
using two canes instead. And so you're right that I, I didn't really think about that in an articulate way until you just mentioned it, but time is very much a part of these travel movies. Um, I'm curious to know your take on Almost Famous because you listed, you listed it as among your top three favorite travel movies. What's what, um, you know, touching on time, but also other elements of, of movement and, and protagonist experience. What about almost famous makes it for you a remarkable travel movie? It takes the idea of a tour and sees it from the point of view of a character, not participating in the glorification of a tour, you know, uh, it's very easy to see a rock and roll tour, despite it, despite the the unglamorousness of every of all of the parts of it that don't happen on stage, as one giant ego trip for the band, because you're just going from place to place, having thousands of people cheer and scream your name. Um, and this movie has, and this movie sees it from the point of view of someone who does not get to participate in that. Um, and yet, it's it's very much about belonging. I think I think as a travel movie, you know. Um, I, I think, you know, for a movie that isn't about backpacking across Europe, almost famous is almost famous is very much about like finding your travel tribe, hmm. like finding, finding people you belong with when you're far away from home. So I'd like to transition now into my three favorite, uh, road movies into the wild lost in translation before sunrise, all of which we've touched on a little bit, but I want to dig a little bit deep just because in part because I want to figure out for myself why I like these the most. Um, and I want to bring up Into the Wild first, simply because um, you, when we were emailing, you had a reaction that you didn't really care much for Christopher McCandless, which I think is a fairly common, Christopher McCandless or uh, Alex Supertramp, the, the protagonist of Into the Wild. Mm -hmm. It's a story about a boy who graduates from college and, and sort of gets rid of his possessions and wanders through the wilderness and ends up in Alaska and ends up starving to death. Um, so I think that would be just an interesting narrative foil. This is a movie, um, I read the book and I later saw the movie and my reaction to the movie was different than my reaction to the book. Um, it sounds hmm. like maybe your reaction to the book was, uh, was not very positive. Oh, I, I enjoyed the book very much. I, I loved the book. Um, and in fact, it was the first thing by John Krakauer I had read. So I didn't have, you know, I didn't have Into Thin Air or I, 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 was Into the Wild his second book? Um, I, I know Into Thin Air was before Into the Wild. I think he, he had like a collection of essays about mountaineering and then Into the Wild and then Into Thin Air. Um, don't quote me on that, but I think that's how it works. Okay, yeah, I think I came across Into the Wild significantly into John Krakauer's career. Um, and so he he probably had a good three or four books at that time. So, But Into the Wild was the first one of his I read, so I had nothing else to hinge it to, mm -hmm. um, what he did. I just, I just sort of knew he was a guy who wrote about outdoorsy stuff. Um, and I found his his portrayal, uh, his, the story of Chris McCandless to be to be very moving and yet at the same time not romantic at all, mostly mm. just sad, sad that this kid felt like he had to do he had to do this grand thing. He had to do this this really extreme and dangerous thing to find himself. And yet it and it ended up killing him. Um, I, I just it. it, it to me, John Krakauer felt felt a lot of sympathy and pity for this kid, but he didn't think his act was um, noble. And so, it's and interesting. I said, 
Well, it, it's interesting that, that Sean yeah. Penn had a different, completely different take on it. And I feel like maybe I, I might agree with you more than I thought I did. But keep going. Keep going. And so I, I remember when the movie came out, and this is this is this is me being impatient more than anything. I remember someone telling me that the movie Into the Wild was something like two hours and forty two minutes, and I was like, and I remember to myself saying, "Oh shit!" Like like the book of Into the Wild is like one hundred and ninety two pages or something. How in the world is the movie this long? And then I, someone, a friend of mine had seen the movie, and I remembered saying. Uh, I remember saying to uh, them, so um, this is a long movie and there's an Eddie Vedder score to it. Do we get the sense that what the main character in this movie did was a noble, heroic act, even though it ended up killing him? And my friend was like, oh, yes, that is exactly the vibe we get. And I was like, not for me. No, thanks. Like, and maybe it was because when the book Into the Wild came out, I wasn't that much different in age than Chris McCandless. And I was thinking to myself, I, th- this is a dangerous, this is a dangerous road of thought to, to hoist my knapsack over my shoulder and start walking down that like, like, you know, maybe cause I was in the middle of fun myself. I'm like, if I believe that I need to do extreme dangerous things to find myself, I am not going to like how this turns out. Um, and so I think I appreciated John Krakauer's restraint, and and I utterly stayed away from what I thought was Sean Penn's lack of restraint. Yeah, well, I think um, there's there's a romanticism that Sean Penn captures that I was actually sort of pulled into, um, in that I could mm-hmm. relate to that part of Chris McCandless. Like when I read the book, when I read books are always more intellectualized and um, movies are more emotional. Um, and so yeah. when I read the book, I could sort of see very distinctly how different I was uh, from Chris McCandless. I mean, he's he's an interesting character in that he sort of captures two parts of the of the of the urge to travel. One is that um, one danger is that you won't get out the door and wander, you know. But the other one is that mm-hmm. you'll over romanticize the journey to the point that it becomes, uh, you know, self harming, right? And so. It's mm-hmm. almost as if what Sean Penn to me, what Sean Pitt took took from from um, from uh, John Krakauer's book was John Krakauer's occasional moments of identifying with Chris McCandless. There's a there's a time in the book where I think McCann uh, where Krakauer is talking about going like free climbing by himself with ice axes, just like some really stupid stuff he'd done as a young man. Um, mm. I was actually the summer that he died. I was I, I jumped trains across Washington and Oregon. Not that it was that dangerous. Um, I did a lot of little self initiatives around the same time. Interestingly, mm. I didn't when I saw Chris McCandless. I was sort of intimidated by him when I read about him in the book because he was just so much more extreme than anything I tried. Like, why on earth? There's no way that I would get rid of my money and, and go live in a bus. You know, I'm just I'm just mm-hmm. not that I'm not that impetuous. But then for some reason. The Sean Penn um, rendering of the movie, it captured that feeling, even though rationally I wasn't really that parallel to Christopher McCandless when I was jumping trains and, and hiking into the wilds of the Olympic National Forest. It captured that feeling of longing and even how a lot of the people he runs into, like the like the wayward couple who's lost a kid and the, the older man who's lost his kids. Again, there's these themes of loss coming up. That they see something in him, almost like with Alvin Strait in the Strait story, and they want to help him. 
and they they want to do it. They sort of want to give him advice to to set him straight, but they also sort of want to be him. And it's in that ambiguity. It's in that that the the blazing future of of Christopher McCandless that I was sort of drawn in to that vibe, which isn't really an idea so much as a feeling. And so I'm I'm giving you a lot to work with here, but one idea was well, what would have happened if he wouldn't have died on that bus? You know, because we're at a time now where between the book and the movie, there there are people who take pilgrimages to that bus in Alaska, and at least one of them has died trying to cross that river. And so, oh man, if Christopher McCandless had, as a 45 year old, written a book called Reflections on Into the Wild about his own youthful self. I just couldn't have had the same narrative energy as this kid who dies Christ-like in the wild um, on on the cross of his own impetuousness. And so I don't even know if I have a, an opinion about that, but it's just an interesting thought experiment to think about how, if you subtract death away from the Christopher McCandless story, would anybody be that much into it? So grab onto it what you want, but those are some of my thoughts about Into the Wild. Yeah, I, I, I think I don't know what I don't know what made me think of this, but I I immediately when when you started laying out this this take on Chris McCandless, I immediately thought of the Werner Herzog documentary Grizzly Man, oh, which is a um, great movie. Yeah. Yeah. Another movie about like a young American who goes out, who spends a bunch of time into the wild and, and dies Alaska. because of it in Alaska, yeah. in Alaska. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm, I guess I wonder how much the consequent, the conditions under which one of these young people dies and whether or not we sort of blame them for it, um, plays into this and plays into the, the, ro- the, the romanticism we give to their, to their journey or not. Um, probably because, uh, 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 Timothy Treadwell was a was a less appealing personality than Chris McCandless was. Uh, so, sort the, of a goofball. Uh, There's sort of a comic uh, yeah. aspect to him, right? A goofball and, and and someone who kind of kind of screams, "Look at me!" In, in his very being, and also like to be fair, um, uh, is killed by by his his bear friends um, in Alaska because he. He fatally has has made a dozen trips to visit these bears in the summertime and fatally decides to do it in the winter. Hmm. Um, something he has never done before, something the bears are trying at a time when the bears are trying to get the last bit of food into their systems before hibernation. And the movie makes a very clear point that that you that, that this is a, a a very crucial time for a bear's survival right before the beginning of the hibernating period. And you don't want to mess with a bear when it's when it's when it's at this time of uh, during at this time of year. And he does. And he's and, he, and he's killed for it. Uh, he's killed because of it, I should say. Um, whereas, you know, we tend to think of, we tend to think of Chris McCandless sort of making a valiant attempt and then, and, 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 and the, the, the quest of it is simply too big for him. Um, so I don't know, like, I, I, I guess, I guess maybe what it raises for me, what it raises for me and probably unfairly to Chris McCandless and the very idea of, of, of a tragic travel movie, which is what Into the Wild is, um, is, how how much how much of how much is the protagonist at fault like how much do we how much do we consider what happened to them a terrible accident or the terrible result of youthful naivete 
or and how much do we consider it and, and how much do we consider it, you know, a, a really like like reckless act of stupidity that was bound to result in, in something like this? Yeah, you know, I think that to answer that question, I know that and Krakauer writes about this in the book that actual Alaskans are like, dude, bring a map. You know, you you don't need to yeah. to be so romanticized that you don't bring a map. You know, you brought a you brought a guide to edible plants. Is it going to kill you to, to not bring a map? Well, apparently it did, right? Um, yeah. One thing one thing that I I will grant to the movie is that it really shows him as sort of an arrogant rich kid. Like it doesn't pull punches. It doesn't romanticize him to the point that it completely hides sort of the inherent arrogance behind his philosophies. Um, and I, I just remember watching the scenes, even when I was older than Chris McCandless, you know, watching him burn his money and get rid of his car and stuff. Those are just choices that I wouldn't have made and feel like the luxury of a kid who hasn't lived without for a while. Um, conversely, I mean, it's interesting to see him work in fast food and stay in mission shelters. Um, but um, Sean Penn does bring in a lot of irritating sides of Chris McCandless. One final point I'll make on this is – and I think it's it's something that Sean Penn sort of inserted into the movie is that basically he gives Chris McCandless a narrative arc of discovery and then he pulls the rug out with his death because when he's in the bus, he basically realizes – you know, the idea that happiness is happiness is only real when it's shared, right? So the moment that he finally realizes the foolishness of his isolated undertaking is when he can't get back across the river. And if you know from the book that there was a there was a bucket there's there's a, a zip line like five miles up the river where he could have crossed the river. Um mm-hmm. but it feels like almost by by nature, Sean Penn did what John Krakauer couldn't do, which is that he gave Chris this personal narrative arc, he gave him the epiphany, and then he didn't allow him to actualize the the gifts of that, and so it made it into sort of a tragic, more dramatic, and more affecting movie. Yeah, um, that's uh, yeah. There's something. I think I think what you're raising is a really interesting question, which is sort of the privilege we associate with the ability to get away from it all Hmm. and getting away from it all is only is only one kind of travel movie it is perhaps the most romantic kind of travel movie you know for 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 as as much as a movie like lost in translation is structured like a romance it's a very unromantic movie like it does not i i don't think it makes i didn't want to i I didn't want to visit Tokyo. I, I, well, I, I wanted to visit Tokyo and have exactly the experience the characters don't have in Lost in Translation. Right. Um, uh, but I think I, I think what it raises, like it raises this, what, what you're raising is this idea of like who is who is allowed to get away from it all, and and, and by what motivation. The idea of, and I think the move. This may be one of the few areas where movies sort of accurately lay out what it means to run away. Um, accurate, I mean, to to the human condition, to the actual lives in which we live. Which is, if you are able to run away from it all as a relatively happy person, even if you're an unhappy person looking for something uh, or wondering what the next phase of your life is, you're probably a person with privilege, uh, economic cultural, racial, whatever it is. Otherwise, if you're not, you're probably a person running from hurt or tragedy. Uh, there's that great line in, in Hoosiers where, uh, where Barbara Hershey says about 
Gene Hackman, the basketball coach, says, nobody ends up in a small town like Hickory, Indiana, unless they're running from something awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's and, and there's so much truth to that. There's so people people who are who are happy who are happy with their lives um, don't just start running away from don't just start running away from it to you know fuel their sense of adventure. Or if you can, you are probably a person with a very wide safety net to catch you. Um, free spiritedness, ironically, is probably the product of some kind of privilege. I think this could dovetail a little bit with the Easy Rider, or at least the epic of Easy Rider, because I think that a lot of the struggle that drives the, our narrative understanding of how the world works, um, it's it's the Horatio Alger story. You know, it's making it in society. It's it's rags to riches, right? Well, what happens mm-hmm. when when you're or, or let's 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 uh, let's tame that a bit to rags to stability. You become middle class in America. Well, then mm-hmm. what? Well, then you can fetishize yeah. your smallest unhappinesses, right? You can fetishize the yeah. fact that you may be rich, but your your dad has had another kid by another woman that you didn't know about, as is the case with Christopher McCandless. Or you mm. went to Yale and your husband is, is sort of a douchey photographer guy who takes the stars too seriously, as in the case with Charlotte in Lost in Translation. And so I think, as with so many travel narratives, there's this assumption of the middle class starting point. That um, mm. and, and it's often an upper middle class starting point. Um, one exception in this situation maybe being the straight story, but most all of this, all of the movies we like actually involve people from a fairly stable environment. You know, including Ferris Bueller, obviously a very upper middle class guy, um, using the road to suss out maybe problems that wouldn't be super obvious in the comfort of their homes. Uh, and so again, this is mm-hmm. something that, that didn't even occur to me until we were having this conversation, but I think that there is something, there is something uh, very basic about the role uh, of privilege, which is almost a, a word that's overused now and is sort of used as a cudgel, but I'm just saying it descriptively that um, Christopher McCandless is operating from a, a position of privilege, and so the, the 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 questions he's examining are very much middle class people questions. You know, it's it's a different sort of narrative than maybe some of the more maybe some of the more mythic um, hero's journey type questions. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, I think there's a I, I think there's certain questions that we all indulge in just as part of the human condition, but having the time and the freedom to do so and thinking that and thinking thinking there is something believing there is something noble about your quest to to find the answer to those questions. And not always, but is often the product of not not having to make a living, or at least not immediately. Well, let's let's use this to transition into Lost in Translation because I think we have some characters that are even more privileged in a sense. Um, um, you know, they have their problems. I, you know, Charlotte is is newly married. She's a Yale graduate. She's obviously doing well financially. She's sort of going on her husband's ticket. Bob is a movie star. He's making a million, two million dollars to 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 uh, represent Suntory. And so we end up with these characters who, by their very displacement, sort of shed some light on the complication of, of love and marriage and, and, and you know, the decision to settle down with one person and be in love. But then there's also the backdrop of Tokyo itself. Um, this movie also has its detractors. There's some people who don't really care much for Chris uh, McCandless um, in Into the Wild. And there's some people who think that Bob and Charlotte are just completely ignorant of Japan. 
my my argument against that would be well of course they are you know they're, they're they spend their time mm-hmm. in a hotel um and they have a conversation fairly late it's it's a it's a banal beat of a conversation on an otherwise powerful scene i think they're lying in bed together it has the most uh sexual tension of any scene where she asks about why why do they confuse the r's and the l's here and you know bill murray says oh it's it's just for yucks it's just for lax lax Yucks. Well, I actually lived in Korea for a while. I'm not sure how it worked in Japan, but in Korea, they don't. There's one letter that represents both. It doesn't transliterate directly. You know, there's actually an answer no to that kidding. question. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, there's an answer to that question. But Lost in Translation, like all of these movies, isn't prescriptive. It's not a. This is. It's not a movie whose theme is this is how you should travel in Japan and this is how you should show cultural respect and deference. It's about two people who are completely in over their heads in life and in Japan. And they're a little bit, they're a little bit smug, you know, like um, um, Charlotte, Scarlett Johansson sort of makes fun of the Anna Ferris character for calling herself Evelyn Waugh. Um, and there's, a, there's sort of a snarkiness even with their fellow countrymen. And so it seems in character and maybe even a smart move on Sofia Coppola's part to have that smugness apply in, in a sort of ignorant way to Japan where they ask a question about the L's and the R's. And we never get the answer, even though there literally is an answer to that question. So I'm curious to know your take on on uh, Lost in Translation, then then also that, that criticism it's gotten as being not quite as gentle with Japan as it could have been. I think if we look at Lost in Translation through a very, very narrow iris, um, it is easy to say this is a movie about white people problems. This is a movie about what happens if given your your status and privilege as an educated, talented uh, member uh, member or, or at least married to a member of the cultural elite, um, what happens if you find yourself at a point where you feel like the thing whatever got you here was a series of bad decisions? Um, and if you look at it that way, you can say boohoo to Bob and Charlotte. Um, you know, most people, most people don't start out, don't start out 500 feet in front of the, in front of the starting line, um, when, uh, when mapping out a life's journey for themselves. Um, on the other hand, I think if you have, a, a, a wider iris and a more open and generous spirit, um, which I, I feel like that movie for speaking for myself, that movie kind of kind of asks of me and engenders in me. I think I think the movie is about is 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 just about the the, the profound sadness of, of 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 that condition that we all face. What if we did our very best to make to make good decisions, and we arrive at a point that um should be we arrive at a point in life where we should be reaping the benefits of those good decisions, and we're just not. We just don't. We, we feel like we've actually made a mistake somewhere in somewhere somewhere uh, made a wrong turn somewhere, and we don't know where. Um, and now we're stuck. Um, I think that I think the movie is very much about being stuck, and I think the perhaps narrowness or or, or provincialism by which it views Japan. Uh, frankly, I think it takes place in Tokyo because Tokyo is is a very photographable city and it's autobiographical, and that's probably where Sofia Coppola got the idea for it. Um, but it could just as easily be um, Nairobi or Johannesburg or Madrid or Stockholm or anywhere else. Um, that's true. And that, I think 
it, it does come, hold that thought, but it does come off as a movie of someone who's intimate with hotels, right? This is somebody who yeah. knows these hotels well because so much of the movie plays out in the hotel. And in fact, early in the movie, all we see of Tokyo are lights of the city from 50 floors up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it, it, the movie play, yeah, the movie understands that, that a hotel, um, that a hotel, a hotel, like what, what a hotel spiritually means, a hotel is designed for people that are alone, is designed to embody people or house people that are either lonely or people that are, are content at that moment, keeping their own counsel. Um, and, and Bob and Charlotte are both of those people. Um, and I think at, at, at the same time, and I think, yeah, I just think, I think the movies, movies, narrow provincial view of Japan is, is very much tied up in these people being, um, being, uh, uh, wounded and, um, and lonely and, um, and not feeling and not being their best selves. Like we are not seeing, uh, there, there is a better version of these two characters that exists off screen. We, we are seeing the sort of C minus version of who these people are. Yet it's interesting that through their bond, they create this energy that really endears them to the city in its own low stakes way. Because one of the one of the most delightful and memorable scenes in the movie is where they go to a restaurant and then they they run around a little bit and they end up in a karaoke place. Um, yeah. And they're, they're singing these songs, which sort of have cliched sentiments at one level but at another level um they they're sort of winnowing meaning out of them in real time and if you've been to that part of asia you know that karaoke is something if you want to do you could do seven nights a week you know it's not like they've discovered anything mm -hmm. unique about uh japan they're just doing things that japanese people do all the time but there's a point at which uh charlotte says to bob let's never come here again because it would never be as much fun and so i think it's interesting how this movie finds triumphs in these small banalities. And I think that's one reason why it's a good travel movie is that for a Japanese person going and singing karaoke is how you spend the time. It's not going to be a boring time. It's going to be something you're going to look forward to, but it's not going to make your trip. Whereas somehow this bonding experience, this quirky little Japan experience that Bob and Charlotte had that culminated in karaoke singing really, really took them out of the doldrums that had confined them before. Yeah. Yeah, very much. And, um, and the fact that, you know, I, I don't know the fact that karaoke is kind of, you know, is kind of a, a standard bearer of, of nighttime entertainment in, in East Asian countries. I, I, I don't find that, I don't find that stereotypical at all in this movie. I find it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a really interesting storytelling plot, uh, storytelling plot element in this movie because karaoke, the way it's done in Japan demands a kind of physical intimacy. You're kind of all crammed into a booth together, mm. um, into almost like a ship's galley. And you've chosen to, to be in the room with people and do something sort of demonstrative and, and revealing of your vulnerability. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I think there are these, I, I think, I think the movie comes from from basically a very sad place and a place where uh, being far from home is not seen as glory as glorious or as 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 an act of self-discovery, but rather a um, a play a, a shore that you kind of wash up on when you've um, when you've lost yourself. Um, 
or maybe you've realized you've lost yourself when you arrived there. Um, and uh, and I think I, I think I just think the moments of happiness make that all the more poignant and well-rounded. It's it's a really special movie. Yeah, you know, it, it's something that just occurred to me that early on in the movie, the characters are watching TV alone. Um, and oftentimes it'll, it'll show the screen and it'll cut from Charlotte to Bob and Bob to Charlotte. They're watching the same thing. Um, and in the, in the karaoke, I lived in Korea, so it's the same situation. It's called Noribong in Korea, is that you're, you're singing, you're having this great time, and you're also watching TV. And so it's almost like the payoff to, from watching TV alone to watching TV with this little instant family that, that, that travel provides you with. Um, and I think that there is something – and again, I don't know if it's tied into the music. I'm, I'm curious to know your perspective, but there is very much a sadness. And there's a, there's a non-resolution that comes with this that both of them are going back to their spouses at the end of the movie unless you think that whatever Bob whispered to Charlotte at the end is was some sort of game changer. Um, yeah, but, I don't. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it's one of those things that people are obsessed with – some people are obsessed with what Bob says to Charlotte at the end of the movie, but – I don't think Bob and Charlotte know what's going to happen. I don't know if they know how they feel about each other. They've just they've just witnessed something beautiful in this low stakes transformation they experienced in Japan. And again, for the for the viewer, the fact that um, the Jesus and Mary Chain songs and the My Bloody Valentine songs are playing sort of give it this this blissed out vibe um, that. That could be, at least from my perspective, one of the biggest triumphs of this movie is that it allows a low-stakes triumph to feel satisfying. Yeah, I I I love the music in in this movie. I I think Sofia Coppola has has is just a real genius with with selecting uh, with putting a soundtrack together. Um, she does it similarly to how her friend Wes Anderson does it, which is the choices don't seem particularly obvious. They're, they're almost never contemporary and um, and and they're not and and they're rarely you know in one particular style. Um, but despite all of the ways the music seems to not line up with the movie, somehow it works. Uh, there's nothing about Rushmore other than perhaps it's passing familiarity to Quadrophenia that says 60s mod music, and it works. <laughs> it works beautifully. Um, there's nothing about The Virgin Suicide, Sofia Coppola's first movie, that says French ambient um, because it's an incredibly American story set in the American Midwest in the 1970s, and it works. Um, uh, there's nothing to me about, you know, there's nothing to me about Lost in Translation that says 80s new wave, and yet that works too. Um, it's yeah, it's 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 a certain kind of magic, and it it you know it it almost it it, it it oddly brings up another thing I didn't quite like about the beach, which is the soundtrack of the beach is so of the moment that it's it's practically embarrassing because you feel like the movie is going to like mm. date like by its second day in the theater. Um, I remember a couple of times liking a song I heard in the beach and being like, huh, I wonder who that is. And I went and I looked it up and I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, like, like, does it have to be, does it have to be an artist that practically has 1999 tattooed to their forehead? Like, does it, does well, it have to be Sugar Ray? Like, <laughs> a lot of those songs too, they were clearly, it was a designed soundtrack. And so you're listening to this sort of blissed out dance with a beautiful stranger music. And Leonardo DiCaprio is, is responsible for the death of five people. Right. You know, so there's yeah. just like a, a weird, um, 
asymmetry actually um where uh, you know train spotting is an example where music was was very jarring and effective whereas in the beach you sort of have this cool guy music that feels good to listen to but it takes you out of the emotional stakes of the movie which we're never really that much in touch with to begin with so very much so well, let's transition into Before Sunrise because that's a more traditional romance movie. I mean, you have uh, in Lost in Translation, you have this this romance setup that doesn't actualize itself, and that makes it interesting. Whereas in Before Sunrise, you have a very traditional yet time-framed romantic situation and very, very chatty. I remember that when the reviews came out, there were, some reviewers were startled by how chatty um, these two characters were. Um for whatever reason, and it could just be that I'm a little bit like Jesse in that movie, like I'm from the middle of the country and I was about that age at that time. I didn't actually do that trip, but for some reason, yeah, of course I would have liked to have uh, met Celine. I would have liked to have thought those those, um, those th- thoughts that they were thinking and had those conversations that they were having. And, and in a certain sense, it's almost like this – they talk in a way that you wish you would have talked at age 23. Like the, the conversation is, is always smart and, and relevant. And you have, and I'm, I'm curious to know if, if you find any cynicism at that, but it just like um, Jesse and Celine are these, are these um, sort of all-star versions of who we could be. They immediately go into very meaningful and longing and, and prescient conversations. So, and just so the audience knows, it's about, Lost in Translation is about one night. It's about two strangers who meet on a train and decide to get off in, in Vienna and spend a night together. Uh, what's your take on, on Before Sunrise? I mean, I, I, I love Before Sunrise. I, I loved it when it came out. I continue to. I, I think I always felt like, I always felt like realism was kind of not the point. Hmm. Um, Strangely enough, like 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 I, I'm like Lost in Translation, Before Sunrise is autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Linklater was on a train in Vienna, got off the train, went you know went to a toy store, ended up meeting a woman there, and ended up talking all night with her. Um, in fact, I believe he might have written the screenplay with her. Um, actually, they, I, this is something I happen to know. He actually, she, he never found her. And when the movie came out, he was sort of hoping she would turn up. Turns out she was killed hmm. in 1994. Um, she, I think she was a, German, oh, that's terrible. A, a German woman who died in a motorcycle accident a couple of years after, or maybe it happened in 89. So maybe five years after they met. So it's this, it's this weird true story backstory where he talked all night to this woman, said he was going to make a movie about it, and then was sort of hoping maybe she'd turn up when he did make a movie about it. And it turns out that she didn't survive long enough to see the movie. Oh, that's too bad. I, I guess, uh, yeah, maybe he wrote the screenplay with Kim, what's her name, who he wrote, who co-wrote Dazed and Confused with. Kim Krizan, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, that's that's a shame. I mean, I I think, but I think, and, and it was not, it was not, um, the the relationship Richard Linklater had with this woman was not romantic, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, there, there may have been some. Yeah, I, I don't re- remember, but it wasn't. I, my takeaway from reading about it wasn't that they that they fell in love or kept in touch, but they just had this really, really strong connection that never left him. Yeah, um, and so the that 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 that's a tragedy. That that's too bad. That you know that 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 the 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 the, the co-star of this movie in real life and didn't live long enough to um to see it um 
the um so but what's interesting i i i i loved before sunrise because it was a richard linklater movie and i had loved his first two movies i think it feels very much like a third movie the same way like a third album is really like a band becoming themselves um i think um and i think you know you can't I, I think Before Sunrise is not aiming for realism because we have two very obvious movie stars playing the lead characters in this movie, which which was not the case in Richard Linklater's previous two movies. Obviously, Slacker didn't have any movie stars at all, and and Dazed and Confused was all people before they were famous. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody is kind of shot in the same way in Dazed and Confused. There are no there are no obvious there are no obvious you know. Um, keep an eye on that kid moments in dazed and confused. Um, but this, uh, before sunrise is almost shot like an old fashioned Hollywood movie. Um, big movie stars who are, who are glorified in the filming of the movie as movie stars. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit like, like Roman holiday that takes place over one night as opposed to, you know, as opposed to, uh, uh, uh longer than one night that Roman holiday does. Um, and I and and we can't like we can't look at before sunrise as a travel movie now in 2019 separate from what it becomes, which is the story of a marriage, as opposed to a travel movie. It becomes it becomes the first chapter, the travel movie portion of the before sunrise story becomes becomes a, a, a the first becomes the the the, the where they meet portion of a trilogy um that is that is the story of a marriage as opposed to the story of of an adventure um i think uh, it's actually it's a it's a weird kind of maturing that the that the before trilogy uh begins with an adventure and then and then becomes the adventure of a relationship the adventure of being married to someone I think when you, if you watch Before Midnight, and just so listeners know, there's Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. Before Midnight having a completely different vibe than the first two because it's much less romantic. It's about sort of the realities of marriage. Um, mm-hmm. But I'll, if you watch, if you if you've just seen Before Midnight and you watch Before Sunrise again, you realize a lot of their cynical comments about love and marriage are directly applicable. Years later, to the oh, relationship no they will they will eventually have. It's I only watched Before Midnight once, in part because it's just not as inspiring as the other two movies. It's just a harder, it's a more <laughs> realistic movie. Um, yeah, but it, it it stuck with me enough to, for me to remember that wow, you know, a lot of what they were saying as twenty three year olds became a part of their marriage as forty three year olds. Hmm. Yeah, that's I, it's amazing. Like I, I own the Criterion DVD box set of the three movies, but I've never watched the three in a row. Hmm. Um, it sounds like that would be pretty obvious if you did. Yeah, yeah, and, and I just wonder if, if, if as a as screenwriters, the temptation would be there to bring in those certain cynicisms and then have to live with the reality of what you were once cynical about. You know, the idea that in true romance and true love and long-term love you don't you can't sidestep what you were cynical about when you were younger and i really wonder what would have happened how would it, how would we be thinking about this movie differently if there were no sequels you know if 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 it was the yeah. idea that this was if it was the only time they saw each other you know um what you know what do, what do you make of that what how do you think that, that the way we see this movie would be different if 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 
it was just a standalone movie instead of the first of an eventual trilogy. Yeah, I mean, then it becomes very much about youth, and it becomes very much about like how open you are as a young person to accidents and twists twists of fate. Hmm. Um, before sunrise, before so, I, I'm not saying it couldn't work if the characters were in their 60s instead of instead of 23, but it's just a different movie then. Um, and and I think there's something about there's something about um, and, and the movie draws a very the movie draws a very clear distinction that Jesse is kind of lost in his life, but Celine is not. Um, uh, in he's, the first he, movie, yes, in the first movie, they're they're, mm-hmm. they're at a very different place in life, but like, but she is she is more together than he is. Like like they, they that's I think that that's it, fairly evident in um they they make a pretty big point of that in this movie. Yeah, he's he's um, wandering Europe for three weeks after having been dumped, and she's just seen her beloved grandmother. So, right. And is headed back to school. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I, I think, I, I think the movie, the movie, by by having the characters be kind of askew uh, with each other, same same time, you know, same age, same obviously attract an attraction between them, um, but but being really really at different points on their life journey, despite all of those things. Um, I think is what highlights and makes re- pulls into very sharp focus the kind of accident of their meeting. Um, I yeah. mean, it, it's funny the, the movie kind of sets it up so it doesn't seem like an accident. They're the only two people who look like movie stars, and so of course they're going to meet. Um, and it's the kind of movie where you could—it's I, I, a game I like to play with my best friend. You could end the movie in five minutes by him saying you want to get off the train and her saying no thanks, and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> or it, it, could, it could follow the German couple that's arguing, right? It could be about those two. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but the movie really is about really is about accidents and, and about and about um being open to accidents and and i think i think though it's not necessary the movie does make a pretty big point of that of, of you just being more of a raw nerve and being and being more willing to to do that when you're young yeah and then i think you know thematically the movie would very much be about living in the moment and how the moment is what we have, and and you know this relationship shouldn't be about what it portends for the future, which of course it, it became very much about the future because it had two sequels, but about the, the what meaning contains in a certain moment. Uh, and it's interesting how you know you make a joke about how the movie would have been over in five minutes if Celine just shrugged and said, "Yeah, no thanks." Um, mm-hmm. A, a really smart thing that happens in the movie after that is you really wonder when Jesse is going to make his move, right? Um, they're like mm-hmm. they're like sitting in the back of the tram, and he sort of has his arm around her. And I remember I was I don't know when I was twenty four I think when the movie came out, and I'm just thinking is that is that it is that when he should make his move? And he doesn't right. And then they're listening they're in the listening booth together, listening to this song, physically forced to stand close together, and it's like oh, okay this is where he'll make his move. And he doesn't, which is which is kind of nice because. Um, it sort of lends to that awkwardness of not really knowing when you're going to make your move. And then finally they, they have their first kiss on the Ferris wheel and, and she later makes fun of him for that. But um, I think it just, it just shows how um, in the moment you're, you're still sort of creating a narrative, even on, on that one night, you know, that, that um, you're trying to, 
create an experience and 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 verify a connection, you know, unless you're completely cynical and you just see it as somebody people trying to get laid. But um, and of course we don't realize that they had sex until the next movie, um, right? But um, uh, yeah, there, there's just something. That it seems that there's something very true and also very narrative in the sense that they are obviously attracted to each other. They're sort of navigating how they should make sense of that attraction. But they're also talking about things that had happened a few minutes or hours before. Um, and they're trying to create something and, and they're just wondering if the story will go beyond this night. And so I think that's one thing that's very beautiful about this movie before the other sequels uh, came through. And I think one joke about this movie is it's like the least grossing movie to ever have a sequel. Because um, before Sunrise was a was a cult movie, but it was not financially successful. Um, but it's it's very much uh, two people um, navigating their attraction to each other and what it means in sort of this narrative sense that is very much manifested in the fact that they just keep talking and talking and talking. Yeah, I, God, you brought up a lot there. Um, I let me let me see if I can if I can uh, uh, remember the order of this. Um, uh, one. Uh, the the moment you're talking about when when Ethan Hawke has his arm around her and he goes to push her hair out of her eyes and then he when she notices he's doing it he pulls back his fingers really quickly and acts like he was doing nothing it's simply a brilliant piece of acting like like to think that I think that these two actors were eh, not 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 their first time at the rodeo but like pretty pretty new or at the beginning stages of their career uh, it, it is a stunning piece of acting and and there's there's two dozen of those in this movie mm. um uh, they they really they really both rise to the challenge incredibly uh, a movie where despite being in a, in a beautiful place like vienna is really a movie about two people talking for 93 minutes um and to have it to have it not to, to have us be interested is, is not only to the credit of the screenplay or the setting, but is to the credit of of, of the two of them um, as actors. Uh, two, uh, I'm not sure you could have a first kiss in a in a movie set in Vienna and not have it take place on the Ferris wheel. Um, but uh, but at least the at least the movie uh, acknowledges that cliche. It's like being in Paris and having your first kiss on top of the Eiffel Tower. Um, the at the same time, the first kiss is the is the page 30 of this movie. Um, at which point you are quite right to say, and I'm guessing you said when you first saw it and I saw it, okay, now what? Like, like we're early on. Is the next 90 minutes just people like making out and having sex all over Vienna? <laughs> because like that's interesting for about 10 minutes, but that doesn't seem to be quite like like the tone that the, that it doesn't seem to be quite what this movie is about. Like um, uh, a lesser movie would the, the next 60 minutes would have been them figuring out how to stay together forever um, and would have been really boring as a result. Uh, finally, I, I think before Sunrise does what all great movies and in parallel what travel does ideally, which is it expands your notion of what's possible. Hmm. Um I have I have never like like had a love affair like the kind described in Before Sunrise. I've never been to Vienna for that matter. Um, at the same time, and and this may be a little bit less possible in the era of social media, but at the same time, I think when you get to a certain age, 
if you are, you know, if you are a person who values friendships, everybody has a couple of friends where you can look back upon that relationship. Uh, you can look back upon that friendship uh, and say, were it not for this accident of fate, we would have never met. Hmm. And here we are. And here we are 25 years later. You know, I have I have a really close friend that was a schoolmate of another close friend, and she was visiting our mutual friend in college, and she was in town for two days. And if I hadn't like dropped in on him to invite him to lunch, not knowing she was there, we wouldn't have become friends. And here we are 25 years later. I'm still friends with both of them. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, you, you could say Facebook takes some of the mystery out of that. But I feel like I feel like what Before Sunrise does, and, and it's it wasn't a new notion in 1994 when that movie came out. But what it does is it tells us how, in, 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 to me, its most romantic notion is that we are all like like one seat away on the train from meeting the person that could change our lives. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, that's a that's a palpable thing too. I think especially when you're young, you know, when you want to meet your Selena or Jesse and um, and you're just and of course, they're the two best looking people on the train car, as you mentioned before. But um, much like in Lost in Translation, it's, it's a different movie than Lost in Translation, but a lot of their epiphanies play out very much in a tourist zone. Um, I, I think it's so smart when the gypsy woman comes and, and reads their poem, because that's such a tourist zone thing to happen, or the, the, the guy by the river who writes them a poem. And then it allows... It allows Jesse to be cynical about it, you know, and Celine to be a little bit upbeat about it. And through very common tourist zone things, you know, the sort of the the Vienna equivalent of karaoke or whatever, although that's more of a local type thing in, in Tokyo, um, we're able to get to know these people better by their interactions. You know, they play pinball in a bar. They go to, to bars and restaurants and cafes. Um, and there's nothing extraordinary about the setting, even though of course it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary to them. They're in Vienna. They're in this beautiful place. And um, I guess just one one final thought about this movie and Lost in Translation is how plotless they are. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, I guess you have like a first kiss moment in in uh, Before Sunrise, but both of them, which which carry so much subtly and so subtlety and nuance, and have so much. You know, kindness and decency among the the local Austrians and Japanese um, are plotless. There's no there's no big reveals. There's no big turnarounds. Um, so I think that was interesting. A movie like The Beach is like a hundred percent plot and completely soulless, from my opinion. Whereas these much more yeah, soulful travel movies, yeah, they have no <clears throat> they have no special gotcha shark attacks or anything. Yet they stick with you in ways that The Beach don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think like great travel, um, both of these, both Lost in Translation are and uh, and Before Sunrise are movies where a lot can happen or a little can happen, and yet you remember every minute of it, um, just because you are so present um, when it is happening. Uh, and also, I think that um, in hindsight. Uh, when you mentioned pinball, it made me think of this. Like someone plays pinball in basically every Richard Linklater movie. Um, it's one of his things. Hmm. And um, and I think in hindsight, 
even though not a lot happens in these movies, when we watch them in the context of a director's other work. And we have a nice sized body of work of both Sofia Coppola's and Richard Linklater. We can see the things that interest them and the way they've and the way they've made you the way they've made they've they've taken these things from movies they made early in their careers and the way they've manifest themselves in movies later in their careers. Um, Richard Linklater's most obvious are the are, are the trilogy that is the Before Sunrise movies, and and Sofia Coppola has for the for the majority of her career been concerned with fame, hmm. and um and the vagaries of fame and um spaces you know, sort of way stations of life, spaces in between the the, the more defined points on our lives' journeys. And um kind of kind of the long, uncomfortable silence of of not uh, of of not knowing who you are. Um I, that's so interesting that they it's I don't think any of them were trying to make a quote travel movie. They were just bringing their own obsessions to bear um in faraway cities and they created very memorable travel movies by just focusing on their existing obsessions. I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I think the the because they're both autobiographical, the places are significant in it's where the original story happened. And yet the places really become uh, really become stages where um, where larger issues about being far from home are explored. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about all the travel movies we talked about, as well as Kevin Smokler's book, Brat Pack America, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. 